November 12, 2020. It's the Watt for Pedro Show.
List monitors arrive with petition. Must look like a dork. So dig this big crux. Organizing Boy Scouts for murder is wrong. Ten years beyond the big sweat point. Man, we're still there ever without you. Coming back around, look. Coming together for just a second. A peak, oh guess. At the wholeness, it's way too big. At the wholeness, it's way too big. For Pedro Show, happy Thursday, brother Matt in Love Grotto, a couple miles south, cause quick Cartino mode. But I'm not totally man alone, cause those engineers in Estonia with their incredible Skype invention. I got John Wister from on board, and from uh, you're calling me from Chapel Hill. I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's the Chapel Hill, and now you're all loud. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. All right, I'll sit back here. Here no, we go. No, no, it's just fine. I, I just, don't worry, John. It's glad to have you on the show. We started off with Soft Lights of Sweet Music from John Coltrane, and then Super Chunk doing a version of Political Song from Mike Jackson. Uh, can you tell me your earliest musical recollection, please, John? Yeah. Um, you know, it was probably just... Um going through my parents' records, and we didn't really have a lot of records in the house, but for some reason, my mother was an Isaac Hayes fan, and so my earliest memory of a record is that album of his called Black Moses that has the incredible gate, uh, it's more than the gatefold, it's like, it basically, when you open this album up, it forms a, a, a vision of Isaac Hayes on the cross in his uh, sort of shamanic robe. So th that's kind of my first memory of physically holding something that was musical. But not hearing it. No, no. I've, I, I, um, I, I have no memory of hearing the record as a kid. Um, so the first m music I probably ever connected to was whatever was on AM radio at that time. So we're talking like early, early 70s. 
Where, you know, so and where is this, John? I grew up outside of Philadelphia, PA, uh, in the Mennonite farmlands. So uh, about 35 miles northwest of Philly, but it was really, you know, no culture whatsoever. It was very, uh, you know, uh, farmlands and no music happening at all. Well, something on the AM radio, right? Yeah, that's it. Yep. Okay. And then, and then, um, now this pad uh, in, uh, I guess it was kind of rural. Yeah, it okay. was. Uh, now this pad that you were in was there musical instruments? There, there was a piano that my dad played maybe two times that I can remember. Um, I have no idea why this piano was in the house, and my memory of of the first couple of times he played it was my mother kind of like just rolling her eyes and leaving the room. So that was really the only instrument that was around when I was a kid. Yeah, but did you ever jump on it? Not, not really. Uh, um, oddly, it just uh, for whatever reason, I didn't connect with the piano. But when I started seeing bands play on TV shows like American Bandstand or or any of those shows, I always looked at the drummer, and and that's when my first interest in in the drums really happened. And then. My my dad and, and my mom let me take drum lessons when I was around 10 years old. Well, well, what about in grade school before that? Were you in the choir or the marching band or shit like that? Oh, I, you're right. I forgot. I, I did play trumpet for a little bit in, in sixth grade, uh, and I still have the trumpet, but it just never never took off for me. Um, I, I, I was really getting into music at that point. We're talking around like age, what, like 11 or 12, 12, or 12 now, I guess. Now, yeah. Now, what was the first record you bought for yourself with your own money? The first record I ever bought was was this novelty song uh, called Life is a Rock, But the Radio Rolled Me. And it, it was by a like a like a fabricated group, almost like the Strange Loves. Uh, and, and they were called Reunion. And. Uh, it was this probably like a top 20 hit record. We're talking like, I guess, 1974, maybe. And the joke of this record is that this guy who's singing it is just rattling off as many artists, musical artists as he can in a two minute, 20 second pop song. And so that's the first record I ever bought. And uh, you said... You liked watching drummers on the TV, so they get you a drum set. What kind of drum set was it? Well, first it was the dreaded practice pad. And any any young kid who plays the drums, they start with a pad and they instantly give up, which I did. I gave up for about at least a year and a half. And well, then my well, some people my, like like Kevin in the urinals. Mm-hmm. We're talking paper heads. Even worse than the practice pad is the, is the kitty drum kit with the paper heads. Yes, yes. So you, oh my you, god! You, you leapfrogged yeah. over that, right? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Now that I remember that too, I did have the paper. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. And, and it's it's funny. You must know Darren Hill, right, from the Red Rockers? Sure. Um, he has this incredible. It's probably the best vintage store I've ever set foot in, and it's it's in Providence, and I'll. Give a plug for that. It's called Pop, P-O-P. Anyway, I, I went to his store about three or four years ago. He had a vintage edition of this very same drum kit. 
the paperhead drum kit I had when I was a kid, and I bought it, and it, it I didn't want to take it home. It lives in his store for as long as we both shall live. But uh, um, after that, on my 12th birthday, which was Halloween of, uh, what would that be? I was born in 66, 78, is that right? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, but uh, I'm my parents, my parents I'm got curious, me a real drum kit. Are you aware of surfing with the Shaw from the urinals? Oh yeah, sure. That's that's Kevin on a fucking kitty oh. kit set with paper heads. Oh and my the, god! And get this, Kel and John. Well, they said the amplifier had two inputs, so why buy a second amplifier? They both plugged into the same fucking amp. Right. Yeah. That's what you do. That's Econo. <laughs> that's Econo. Those guys. They are a huge inspiration to us, Minutemen. Oh yeah. So on this. Halloween, you got a drum kit with like real heads. Yes, yeah, and it it was not a brand. It was it they were terrible drums, uh, but they looked like real drums. So that's kind of all that really mattered to me as, as a twelve year old. Where did you practice them? I had the greatest parents for for this entire run, and I have no idea why because my parents were not musical. I'm the only one in my family that. that had any sort of musical interest or acumen, they let me just practice in the house. And I practiced in the house what, pretty what much. Part? What part? The living room? It, uh, basically, yeah. Because you, know, living... you know you know, about Rudy Van Gelder, right? This guy recorded John Coltrane and shit. Yeah. He turned his parents' pad into like <laughs> his first recording studio. Some people are very, very encouraged by their parents. Yeah, and you uh, and B were thing. like that, right? Other people they hate their kids getting into the music. Other, you know, other folks, yeah, totally into it. So this this is interesting to hear, John. Yeah, so they, God, my 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 relative, um, not my relatives, my my neighbors. I I can't thank them enough for never complaining. I, and we're talking we're talking a solid five five or six years of constant drumming in a like a a bucolic kind of country neighborhood. So I can't so believe they let me do as close as apartments, but close enough still here to hit the fucking hammer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it's funny. I feel like my karma has come around. A guy moved in across the street from where I live right now, and he's a death metal drummer. And he's really loud, and I hear him so clear as as, as a bell, a lot at of, least. A lot of clicky, oh, a lot of clicky yes. kick drum, right? Totally, yes. He's great, but it's so loud. Yeah. Now, now <laughs> did you take lessons? I took... Um, about six months of lessons on that uh, on the pad, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And, and then um, I started playing the snare drum in junior high school. So this would have been this would have been um, seventh grade, and we had this really cool music teacher. This is just like a normal suburban seventh grade teacher, and he was really into Cannonball Adderley, um, uh, Coltrane, you know, which we kids didn't know about or care about. We just didn't understand that at, at that point in our lives. A and um, he would give us um, drum beats at a drum kit to, to learn. And these drum beats were Mother Popcorn, um, uh, Cold Sweat, and another Brown. James Brown song. I can't remember what it was, but you like. You know, he, looking... start, he started as a drummer. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. So looking back on that, I just can't believe I lucked into having 
a junior high drone teacher in 1980 or 79 who, who was who was into that and, and was able to kind of get the ball rolling for, for us in terms of appreciating that kind of playing. Cannonball, John Coltrane, both saxmen for Miles Davis. I think at that time, Philly Joe Jones and the Billy, mm-hmm. Billy Higgins. and Yeah, incredible. Yeah, th- 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 what is that teacher's name, John? His name was John Dakota, D A K O T A, and sadly, he died maybe two years later of cancer. Oh damn! Yeah, still, yeah. people in your life are important. I want to play uh, something because you play with Bob Mould, and you sent me this tune, "American Crisis." So let's listen. <laughs> Conquistador, 
Buscando montañas de oro que el indio nunca buscó Al indio le basta el oro que le relumbra el sol Levántate No sabe el indio qué hacer Le van a quitar su tierra La tiene que defender El indio se cae muerto Y el acuerino de pie Levántate mami ¿A dónde se fue la uta? Perdido en el cielo azul el alma de Galvarino se la llevó el viento sur, por eso pasar llorando los cueros de su cultura. Levántate pues, Calpín. Del año 1400, qué lindo fingido está, a la sombra de su ruca lo pueden ver lloriquear. Nunca se habla de secar, levántate callo pan. Arauco tiene una pena más negra que su chamar. Ya no son los españoles los que les hacen llorar. Hoy son los propios chilenos los que les quitan su pan. Levántate paila Arrojen la votación, se escuchan por no dejar, pero el quejido del indio, porque no se escuchará, aunque resuene en la tumba, la voz de Caucurricán, levántate buen chullar. Yeah. 
shadow came over me, sneaking low. And when it came over me, Carolina said no. The night was long.
show yeah Bob Moe American Crisis John Worcester on the drums Violetta Parra after that with Araco Tiena Una Pena yeah that's a town in Chile yeah and it has a penalty huh? a lot of hard history there Mapuche people I think were indigenous the, the Hellbians over my dead body a demo that just <coughs> Got done by them. They're from Brighton. So is Go Team. After that was Yee Yee Yamaha. Aaron Oppenheim after that was seventh. Guided by Voices with Blue Jay House. Mike Regnetta, Carolina Lady. Now, this ain't the band from Chicago Sticks. This is a Paraj, Alex Hongtai, and uh, Cat from Russia, Pavel. You know, before that band in Chicago, it was a river in hell. So, and. And then finally, Evil versus Evil, Bob Pollard and Tommy King. Now, Bob Pollard, people, is in the Guide by Voices. He does about 50 albums a year. <laughs> you know, John, he played on New Year's, I don't know, 11 months ago, right? It was 100 songs. It was five hours. Yeah, I, I didn't go, but... Now, now, what about, like, you got the snare drum in high school, but what about after school, the garage band, basement band, bedroom band? Did you do that stuff? Yeah, um... I what was that? You got real loud there. Go oh, ahead. How's this? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I would practice in in that room every day along with along with records. You know, like uh, I was really into those first couple police records, The Clash, London Calling, so and you, they're you real off records more than you did from uh, lessons. Oh, totally. Yeah, I I, I did Hurley, take lessons. You know, George Hurley. It was two records: My Generation and Spectrum. Uh, Billy Cobham. Yeah. And with those two records, he taught himself drums with and headphones. Well, and that's why that's why I think all the great drummers, and I'm certainly putting George in in my top five of all time. Um, the guys who kind of forge their own path are are the ones who I think are, are are the most influential, creative, what have you, because they haven't really been shown what what not to do. Or they got to kind of interpret it, right? Because it's just sound. Yes. Yeah. And, and while we're talking about George, I, I wanted to just bring up one particular thing of George's, which, which I is one of the greatest drum performances ever. And, it, and it's not a flashy one. History lesson part two, every other drummer on earth would have gone to the snare drum on the chorus and not the cross stick. He does the exact opposite. And it's just, it's so so beautiful. His playing on that song is just shows you what a great drummer he is by what he doesn't do. Yeah, Georgie, he a lyrical, right? He he hears his, his parts because I think Boone really wanted the rhythm section to come up, and he thought that was the political part of the minute. So he wanted the drums and the bass. Of course, me and Georgie were into that. Since I learned with Boone, we didn't have to spend much time. So most of the time when we composed, 
finding Georgie, uh, letting Georgie find his way to create little signatures and, uh, you know, I'm saying statements. Absolutely. And, 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 and like, even, even a song like Beacons, Beacons Through Fog, he's, his part is super busy, but it's perfect. And, and it, it just, it intertwines with what you and D were doing so well. And that's just another example of how, how great he is. That's probably the Billy Cobham part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so much going on. So, yeah. so what, what about you with like, you know, the, the, the bedroom band, the garage band? Did you do that? Well, there were so few people in my area who were into the kind of music I liked, you know, which was whatever you want to call it, new wave punk rock, that I really didn't, it was hard to find anybody. But then eventually when I was 14 years old, uh, I, I got in a band that was called Hair Club for Men. This was before the actual hair club for men was a, a known quantity, the company. And uh, we were uh, kind of like a, it was kind of new wave. We do like so- songs the Ramones covered. So we do Surf and Bird, Do You Want to Dance, those sort of things. And a bunch of originals. Uh, and I was by far the youngest. I, I was 14. The oldest guy was, I think, 28. And uh, it, it didn't really go anywhere. We played a few shows just in like... BFWs, what but was your, um, what was your first gig like? My first gig was a a backyard party, and uh, that was August twenty first, nineteen eighty one. And the next day, we all we all went to go see the police, the specials, the Go Go's, uh, Oingo Boingo, and the Coasters at a racetrack in Philadelphia. And for the longest time, I just yeah, that was those were the best two days of my life. Yeah, but yeah, what was the gig like? Not their it was, gig, your gig. <laughs> it was just a party. It, it was it was just yeah, like a backyard party. Your, it's your first. Set, you can only have your first gig once, John. Right. So it's kind of a big deal. Well, that yeah, that was the that was the first gig, and and then I found out yeah, later well, what on. What was it? Were you scared? Was it a failure? Did they throw shit? Did they like hoist you up and cheer you oh, like no. a hero? I mean, what happened? Well, it was all friends. It was all friends, and uh, so everyone was into it. So it was a it was a great first gig. Okay, you got to understand, I wasn't there, so you got to use words. Oh, okay. <laughs> to tell me. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it was it was most of of my and my brother's uh, high school friends, and we played played covers. We did uh, a cover of the Plasmatics version of uh, the Bobby Darren song. Uh, I can't think of what it's called. Uh, uh, I'll think. But later on, I found out that my parents drove to this backyard party and sat out on the street and listened and never told me until like maybe months later. Wow. Isn't that great? Covert. Yes. <laughs> we're not going to say they were spying on you. But... No, I think they genuinely just wanted yeah, to see yeah, what it was about were... because it was or so hear, not part of their world. Or hear what it was about, right? Because they weren't really there. Right, see. right. Yeah. That's great. I like this idea of support. You know, the, the idea of parents supporting you, that, that's really uh, letting you crack like that. Drums can get a little loud. Especially, oh, my God. Did you use headphones? Yes. And that I'll never you forget. you don't know but... how hard you're pounding, so all the other people are. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I'll never forget just that, that lightning strike of, I put on this record by Graham Parker and the Rumor called Squeezing Out Sparks. And I put the headphones on, and I realized I could do just that, play along with it. And from there on, it was like the world opened up. Yeah, it's kind of a click track without it being a click. Well, maybe they would use a click track. I don't know. Look, we're at the end of the first hour of November 12, 2020 edition of Pedro Show. Special guest, John Worcester. Hold tight for hour two. 
November 12, 2020. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show. But there's one simple fact 
And though it's hard to understand It looks like free is not what some folks want to be But the truth is harder than that So don't go swallowing What the snake oil salesman To try to sell you Or any old fairy tale Someone pulls from his Sunshine after the rain. 
I'm a mean old man. I'm a mean old man. Hey there, kid, what is wrong with your head? Get the fuck out of my flower bed. Get the fuck out of that bed. I'm a mean old man. I'm a mean old man. I'm a mean old man. My food is soft, but my head is hard. Keep your ball if it comes to my heart. I'm a mean old man.
selfless being told me my presence or selfless being to be in my presence told me most selfless being in my presence most selfless being to me in my presence told me most selfless being to me most selfless being in my presence most selfless being to me in my presence told me stop writing about my soul so the people could dig it i'm digging i'm digging i'm digging and i ain't stopping till i reach the point where the past said the whole world got the same symptoms earth school see me one more like the empire state we want more Show we start off the second hour with Man Meets Fish from Psychotic Norman, then Sam Bennett, Believe in the Lie, Dot Wigan Band, a little bit of noise, Love at First Sight, number seven from Dose, the 
Who's Demented Trace album is going to have a vinyl version? Kill rock stars real soon. You got a little noise over there, John. Then Falconetti with Smile, Johnny Mark and the Ricks, featuring late great Frankie Onway from the Suburban Lawns. What was their drummer man's name? Chuck Chuck Roast. Yeah. Mean old man. Then Johnny Thug from the Thomas Scott Quintet, that's brother Phil in Liverpool. Getting back to his piano roots. He's a bass man. Man, it's really noisy over there, John. Huh, I'm not hearing anything here. Yeah, well, now I can't. Now it's quiet again. Waku Waku Kingdom with the Circle of Life, and then R.E.M. with Jesus Christ. So, from from this band, well, what'd you do school-wise? Did you go to music college? No, I barely graduated high school. Um, I... I, I wasn't even certain I was going to be graduating until I had that diploma in my hand just because I, I, I kind of checked out by the end of, of high school. I knew, I knew I wanted to kind of do music. And um, my, my, my parents did agree to send me to recording engineering school for six months. This was in uh, like uh, May of, of 85. And uh, I, I realized there that I liked playing a lot more than I liked being on the other side of the uh, of the glass so so after that i just kind of went into full-on i gotta be in a band that gets somewhere kind of mode and that's where psychotic norman comes in the band that you just played okay so so where'd you meet these guys uh i met them through my my good friends one of the great things about my senior year of high school was that i i i was taken under the wing of the band the dead milkmen who i'm i know you have Played come across near the river in Philly. It was called the Opera House or something. And, and that's that, where we first met you and I. Okay, that, same, was, oh, that then, night. Then it was that gig. Okay. Yes. So uh, through the Dead Milkman, I meet these guys who had this band called Psychotic Norman, who were who were uh, a Philly band, and they just lost their drummer. And I was just out of uh, this record. Uh, no, I was out of high school at this point, and. Um, Ended up joining this band and played some shows, made a single. And on October 22nd, I'm looking at the flyer right now, 1985, we opened for the Minutemen at the Opera House in Philly, along with the Dead Milkmen. Yeah, it was the only time I played there. That didn't happen for very long. No, the, the only other gig I remember being there was Hoosker's maybe... Eight months before, when we played with Husker in Philly, it was a place called Love Hall. I was at that show too. And that didn't last. <laughs> that yeah, was that a great show, show. That show was pretty insane. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> I remember D Boone. I mean, there was cats holding up the mic like a Iwo Jima kind of thing because the, there was a little balcony and dudes were jumping off. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, onto the <laughs> stage. Oh, that was a great gig. And Danceteria and Chow. I think we did like three or four gigs with the Hooskers. It's a little trip. So you were at right. that one too. That's great. How long were you in Psychotic Norman? We, um, I was in there from probably um, just after I graduated high school in, in, in 84 until um, uh, until the uh, January of 86. And I'm laughing because... Um, we would practice at our bass player's 
house. And um, for for whatever reason, he didn't show up at, at rehearsal on this one Sunday. We, we practiced religiously Tuesdays and Sundays, and he didn't show up at his own house for rehearsal. And I was so annoyed by it. And I, I came home uh, and my brother called and he said this band that he he knew in winston-salem north carolina was looking for a a, a drummer okay, and I, that's how you get to north carolina exactly and i just thought fuck this band i'm gonna see what this is about and i ended up my dad gave me like a hundred bucks or whatever to fly down to north carolina wow. and i auditioned in uh, january of 86 and i i got in and within three months we were signed to arista records just wow. insane and they were uh I mean, what's the same a little more west of where I know you from, you know, Chapel Hill, where you are now. But wow, and to be in a signed band in just a couple months. Here, I, I want to play uh, Get Famous, uh, the Mountain Goats. You were born for these flashing lights. You were born for these endless nights. You always knew, sooner or later, you were destined for something greater. You took notes on what you had to do to get the piece of the pie that belonged to you. You've been waiting for this ever since you were young. Be careful not to choke on your tongue, dad.
Kelly the bartender Said a woman got a throat cut Right down here At the All-Star Inn She got a list of suspects And the rumor mills grinding out leads Just like a shot of bar whiskey Cost you a fin But everybody thinks Like everybody knows Oh, they're talking lips of two voices down At the Indian room It's just death or madness Creeping in on old shoes Now you can choose between the two Just like two black crows They sitting on some pole Stepped past the body On his way out to lunch But didn't realize Until he walked right back Past yellow police tape Corn his family Eastman say We've got a body over here And I was sent to mortality Is biting his tongue This Jane Didn't seem to have a name It's just death or madness Creeping in on old shoes Now you can choose between the two Just like two black roses Sitting on some pole. <laughs> well, it wasn't no murder. Like everybody thought They were just a girl The Indian girl From the halfway house She didn't over on drugs Mix with alcohol Detectives got the coroner's report They sitting on his desk Oh, there wasn't no knife Funny how things do get around It's just death or madness creeping in on old shoes You can choose between the two Just like two black crows He's sitting on some pole 
Pushes death or madness Creeping in on old shoes You can choose between the two Just like two black crows Hey, sitting on some pole
Watt for Pedro show. Yeah, get famous from the Mountain Goats. Deep in the Woods, 66, out of Dublin with Rape by Demon Aliens, of course. You know. Ja Rahm, Parker Wells out of St. Louis, bass band, multiplier. Uh, James Allen from Pedro here. Well, he lives here. I think he's from the Hill originally. Death of Segura. And then finally, Alondro Escovita, a great music. Uh, had a band with the uh, Kidman Brothers after Dills called Castanets. I remember I, I talking to him in Austin once. I think that's where he ended up. Maybe he lives there now. But he told me he did a piece on his pop. And he's talking to me about my first opera with my pop. You know, very cool people, Alondro. Yep, great he guy. Was, he was in the nuns uh, up in the city. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know about that. Okay, so how was your big, your first big label experience? Well, I, I was lucky in that I really took my my music big, uh, sorry, music biz lumps when I was 20 years old. So it, it was it was it was everything you hear about, you know, when you hear like a, a nightmare major like label jive, story. Jive shit, right? <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Yeah. So we we had like t- a month of celebrating and we're big shots. And then the rest of it was just complete yeah. shit where we um, well, where do you we meet got, Mac? Where do you meet Mac and those guys? Because I think that's, besides the opera house in Philly with mm-hmm. Psychotic Norman, where I, I, I remember it was at Fitzgerald's in Houston. I I was not in the band yet at that point. That was still oh, Chuck. that's right. That's right. Yes. And that's right. Uh, actually, maybe they were still called Chunk, too. Might have been, could have been, because they had to change her name, right? And then yep. that guy made a band called Pipe. Yep. Good <laughs> oh, memory, man, yes. Memory, well, not too good. <laughs> you you jostled so, it. Okay. <laughs> so where I met Mac, um, yeah. when when this band that I was in, we were called the Right Profile, which is the name of a, a Clash song. Although we were like a kind of like a roots rock band. Um, um, we ended up moving to northern New Jersey for some reason, I guess to be closer to what we thought was the record business. And uh, so I would go into, into town or go to Maxwell's. This is, this is 1986. Hoboken. And, Hoboken. Yeah, and I would see Mac at, at Maxwell's. He, he was a student at, um, at Columbia yeah. at that point. Right. So that, that's where I first met him. And then fast forward. Um, and you know, in those I, older days, before... Uh, Todd, Ira booked that pad. That's right. Yep. Uh, people were talking about uh, Yole Tango, Ira. Small world. Okay. Very small world. Because at this point, Mac's not making music, right? I think. Oh, he he had a band called. Uh, he had a couple of bands. One was called the Slush Puppies, and one was called Wax with I think two W's. <laughs> w W A X. I think it was. Um, but but then fa- fast forward to uh, early 1991, I moved to Chapel Hill from Winston-Salem. I quit that band that I was in, and um, I got a job as a window washer. And one of the window washing clients was School Kids Records, and Mac worked there. And so that that's kind of where I struck up a new friendship with him. And then I got a, a message from my brother one day that said, hey, Mac uh, called about something. And it, Mac had never called before, so I thought, I wonder if something's up. 
And sure enough, they were having some issues with their drummer. And they were they were going to go on this tour with Mudhoney and see how it went. And if it went well with him, you know, and there was no conflict, they would keep going. And if it didn't, would I want to, you know, give it a, a, a whirl? And that's what happened. Okay. okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, again, a, a situation just presents itself. But you got to be there with the sticks in the air, right? Yeah. We're at the end of yeah. the second hour. November 12, 2020 edition of Pedo Show. Special guest John Worcester. Hold tight for our three. November 12, 2020. It's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro Show.
Live from Pedro Show. Start off the third album with A.C. Newman. Like a hitman, like a dancer. Then Wasted Space as Crane with his... He gave me ten tapes, and here's the, uh, number nine. So one more. We'll hear the whole series. Then uh, Super Chunk with Beat My Guest. <laughs> Great title. Uh, so... Mac needs a drummer because it doesn't work out with the tour. Yes. And, and you, so so I was I'm uh curious, I'm curious. Did you have to try out? Not really. No. During that that period where they were on that tour with Mud Honey, I he gave me a copy of what was going to be their new record, which was their second album called No Pocky for Kitty. And so I would just go on my window washing job and listen to these songs over and over again. And so by the time they got back and realized it wasn't going to happen with the drummer anymore, I, I was ready. And so I, I just brought my drums over to his house and we, uh, and then Jim and Laura showed up and I'll never forget, forget her first words to me were, hey, I'm the weak link. <laughs> and, and we played and our first song, was, the first song we played was Slack Motherfucker and it just felt right. That was the first song you played together. Yep. That's a trip, because you know when I that that first gig, right? I asked him yeah. if I could cover that. Oh wow, yeah! You guys did did a great it version ended up of it. on Live Totem Pole. That's right. Yeah. And speaking speaking of covers, uh, I, I wanted to bring this story because it's still I think it's really funny for us. Uh, when we were doing our record on the mouth at West Beach, um, we took a day off or an afternoon off and we all went to uh was it called mad dog studio is that is that what uh well you well, I recorded uh flying the flannel right what i thought it was what's the record jay did oh mi- with you mr guys? machinery operator so i think it was that record and we went over and yeah and, wait a minute i think flying the flannel god i can't remember where that was done it was with the guys from Boston, though. But oh, Sean and Paul, Sean right? And yeah, Paul, right? Colderi, Paul Colderi from Apache. Yeah. I think Apache. They came over. Okay, that's it. So, but so you're, we, you're right. You're right. Mad so we dog, go. Over, it was in we Venice. Go over, yes, exactly. And so Mac played a solo on one of the songs in that record. I can't remember the name of it though. Yeah, that's right. And Jay, and Jay was then, actually the producer. Right. Yeah, that was the last album Firehose did. So, what about and, that? And and then I think the next day or thereabouts, you came to where we were recording our album, West Beach, and we just happened to be recording this version of this Adam and the Ants song called Beat My Guest. Yeah. And to this day, I think it's still the most takes we've ever done of a song. It took us like six takes to get this thing. And we were all just like, it's so embarrassed that you were there watching this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, man, I heard stories that James Jamerson talking about recording with Smokey Robinson. He said, yeah, about take 239, Rigor Mortis started getting in the groove. Oh. So, <laughs> so, you know, six ain't that bad there, Jeff. Right. What what about the thing with Bob? How how did that connection happen? Yeah, because 
you know, the thing with Super Choke never ended. You're still doing that. Right. We did um we did kind of go on a hiatus around two, uh, 2002 and we still played a show or two every year and like maybe did a song for a comp or something, but we didn't really do much uh, until, until around t- 2010 when we started to put records out again. But, um, so, but the connection with, with Bob Mould was, um, I was always, you know, a giant Husker Du fan and, um, um, how did this go? I played in Robert Pollard's first solo band uh, with Tommy Keene, a guy named Dave Phillips, uh, and a bassist named Jason Narducci. And we lost n- Tommy Keene. Huh? We did. What a great guy! And yeah, I met him a couple of times in New York City. Nice, nice man. I had a great road trip once. I went to see. I think it was in the same night. I drove from North Carolina to Philly to see you play at the TLA, and then I w- walked two blocks and saw Tommy play at J.C. Dobbs. That was a great night. Oh, wow. J.C. Dobbs, I remember that place. Yeah. Um, Pontiac Club. Yeah. South, um, so, South Street. So, South Street, right. Right. So, if, if, if people know downtown Philly, that is a happening street. <laughs> very, yes. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm doing this Mountain Goats tour, and it's it's uh, it would have been 2008, and we're playing. It's the second to last show of of our tour, and we're at at that Unitarian Church in um, in Philly, and I get a call from Jason Arducey, and he's on the road with Bob Bob Mould at that moment on tour, and he goes, "We're having a hard time with our drummer. Would you be able to do this?" upcoming European tour that we're, we're going to do in like four weeks. And amazingly that day, this Australian tour, the mountain goats were going to do the next week or so was canceled. And so I said, yeah, I think I can do that. And then he called, I think he called later that night and said, would you be able to finish this tour? The tour we're on right now. And I said, well, you know, I'm feeling lucky. I, I have one more day of, of this tour, the Mountain Goats tour. So basically the Mountain Goats played at, at uh, the 930 Club. Uh, we all drove back to Chapel Hill. They dropped me off. I showered and then I went to the airport and flew to to L.A. and learning whatever songs I didn't know. Because I, I, I knew a lot of his post-Hooskers stuff also, but I never played any of it. The stuff with and, Anton and then uh, later Sugar. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so I just said, make a list of, of of what the songs are. I'll download them and I'll I'll learn whatever I don't know on the plane. And that's what 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 happened. Uh, now, now, they, what was his connect with you though that, to get that first phone call? Uh, you know, um, we met a couple times. You know, back in the Hoosier days, nothing more than like a passing hello, et cetera. But he put a record out in, um, uh, I don't know what year it was, but it was called Body of Song. And it was on a label called Yep Rock, which yep, is based yep, yep. here. My ex at the time was the publicist at Yep Rock. And she and I went to a, a record release party that Bob had for Body of Song in D.C. And we kind of talked a little bit that, that night. and But it was nothing, nothing super you know, uh, yeah, but you it, don't know that till down the road. So that's a good lesson, people. 
You never yeah. know. So don't be a dick. Exactly. <laughs> she might exactly. Be working with that cat. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I think it, it was more Jason's confidence that I could do it than, than anything, you know. And so, so I f- flew out there. Uh, they got picked up at the airport. I think we spent the night in L.A. and then we drove to. Uh, uh, what's it, Solano Beach, where the, uh, what's up. the venue there? The Belly Up. Yes. It's like and, a and Quonson we, hut, yeah. Yeah, so thankfully the previous drummer left his drums, and I got to play those, and <laughs> I brought my cymbals, and we sound checked maybe half the set, and we played that night. That was it. Okay, that's happening. <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Uh, opportunity knocks, and if you're there, if you're ready for it, you know I have I mean? been I have I have been so lucky in in those those situations. This Nick Cave uh, situation was was just like that too. Yeah, that's a, that's a tr- well. I want to play this thing with the uh, the what were they called? It's uh, Mr. Uh, Tweety t- Tupelo. Uh, Uncle okay. Tupelo. Yeah, yeah. L- 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 let's play this.
was on a game show and I won a vacation. All expenses paid seven days and seven nights. I will be dining at the five-star hotel restaurant overlooking the scenic countryside. I will relax at the luxurious spa and resort. I will breathe deeply and let go. As the sun beats down on my face, I smile. As the waves crash against the shore, I was on a game show. I want a vacation. All expenses paid seven days and seven nights. I am so glad to have met you here. I enjoy your company and value our time together. Who would have thought I would have been on a game show? Who would have thought that it would have led me here? As the sun beats down upon my face, I smile. As the waves crash against the shore, sun beats down upon my face, I smile as the waves crash against the shore. I was on a game show, I won a vacation. All expenses paid seven days and seven nights. And tonight is my seventh night and my vacation is over. It was really wonderful meeting you here. Don't forget to write me when I'm gone. I'm heading home now and I will think of you from time to time. Of when I was on a game show and I won a vacation. So, yeah, also we could mention that this, I mean, what was the, what is the most interesting, I would say, benefit in this perspective 
in of, of this perspective in engagement with the artistic practices what this project benefited is that it is more advanced understanding of form or formation and especially the materialistic aspect of symbolic formations because we're talking about memory and so Gal already mentioned perhaps the most interesting or most, let's say, the uh, ambitious project up until now was is the Miklas Komel's huge 500 pages, How to Think Partisan Art. And also before that, interventions of Rasko Mochnik in discussing, discussing the partisan press and the role of that that cultural forms in later Yugoslavian Yugoslavian let's say theory and practice so question is what are the materialistic effects of this symbolic partisan memory and how these effects can be detected and where are they of course the most easy answer because we deal with the symbolic practices of memory which are concretizing in certain statues or artwork or films is this subjectivity, the question of subjectivity. Subjective politics or subjectivity in this Yugoslavian revolutionary politics regarding the memory has another interesting contribution. I think it is when we start to think of Yugoslavia outside of, let's say, national liberation struggle. So what I am here trying to say is that when we start to think of Yugoslavia after 1948 up to 80s, mid-80s we have a lot of we have an amazing contradictory and turbulent turbulent period and especially it was manifesting in, in contradictions of self-management socialism because self-management socialism which was meant to be a complete social ownership, collectivization of the ownership, withering away of the state, has also relapsed into some sort of financialization of marketization of this of this like hybrid economy in, in Yugoslavia. And that generated quite a big unresolved tensions and contradictions. So if we're going to talk about, if we're going to make sense of that specter of Yugoslavia, first of all, we have to deal with that, with that 
contradictions with that very difficult to handle a question of existence of liberalism, technocratism and doses of the private ownership in Yugoslavia within the self-management. So how to think of revolutionary subjectivity in these conditions? And how to actualize Yugoslavia with all this baggage, with all this difficult, difficult, let's say, conditions. I mean, here I would make a little jump to the back. I like to think of this situation of Yugoslavia in comparison with communism after revolution in Soviet Union, especially with NEP, new economic policy. And to see in which way the artistic avant-garde and some theoretical productions were confronting the contradictions of NEP, which mean, meant economical economical compromise net this is how i would like to define economical compromise in order to keep the politics the revolution to give the primacy to a revolutionary politics so the compromise was happening only on the economical level so what here actually happened what there happened during the NEP period was that subjectivity was completely pushed toward the political side and economy was left as like objective condition. Comparing NEP to Yugoslavian self-management socialism, which of course in Yugoslavia, this lasted not only four years, but four decades. Heaviness of this tension was more, more present. But what happened during the NEP in Russian avant-garde? Presentation, actually the most interesting avant-garde forms appeared then. That was the time when Malevich introduced or was involving with Inkuk and the Institute of Artistic Culture, where the extrinsic element that was completely kept away from the suprematist apparatus were introduced to this non-objective art, and it did not simplify the forms, but contrary complicated and expanded to the all possible fields from architecture, design, film, etc. Music. Ziga Vertov, all these films are dealing with NEP, with the contradictions of NEP. But what is very interesting, and that would be my speculative question, the new things that happened in poetry, which actually is the is the most, let's say, the artistic expression 
unrelated to economical condition. Because if you are making a film, like for example in Yugoslavian case, we could deal with the blackface films and all these other expressions which are very reflecting to this, very, very reflecting on these uh, contradictions. But film is a big apparatus. Film is conditioned by the economical apparatus. And as such, it is conditioned by the contradictions that are inherent in the economy. In this case, the marketization in Yugoslavia. But the poetry and such artistic expressions are who exist existing on that subjective level where the political revolutionary form can be further developed. That in case of Soviet Union, I think best example is left, led by Mayakovsky, left front of art, and these journals, which bring together the best theoreticians from formalists and the poets belonging to futurists and coming up with a complete hybrid interesting form. And it is not inter- it is not uh, it is not a coincidence that in 1924 when Lenin died there is no n- none of the artists especially belonging to these circles who haven't written anything about Lenin. And the reason is because Lenin was the one behind new economic policy. And the contradictions of that new economy policy was unresolved. And this unresolved situation actually was very much determining of taking this of what what sides the uh, these artists were taking. So in Yugoslavia, also we have. I mean, these these cases of of poets, these cases of experimental poets, working in uh, in 60s and 70s, who who have sort of build the theory of their poetic practice through that through that very revolutionary uh, form of the self-management socialism. Which is the which is the who is the, who is the poet living, lived and worked in Vojvodina in Novi Sad, Vitsareshin Tutsic. Quite an interesting poet. Mostly worked on mostly worked on the uh, visual and concrete poetry. And now we are translating bunch of his texts that are from mid 70s until mid 80s. Actually, seeing in poetry a new language that can address that can address this the most interesting, most concrete questions of regarding the the potential of the Yugoslavian revolutionary project.
Earlier on, he worked also with his work in progress poem, complete zone kind of distillation of the Yugoslavian political language into a book called Reform Grotesque. Of course, they're playing with, with like Yes. dialectics of violence of politics and all these economical reforms and and uh, things like that but the first page is a very interesting we see there uh, a partisan ready to throw the hand grenade to a meat like usually to do with a myth can be confronted the, the liberal discourse is based on the critique that Yugoslavian socialism was exploiting a partisan myth and I have to say the topic that I wrote a PhD about is a black wave filmmakers also were let's say thinking in that terms more or less but here you have a very different approach at partisan in fact throwing a bomb to the beat is a complete let's say separation and uh, and creating a, a new language out of that what is scattered here and there in this existing like uh, uh, environment of, of the self-management so I, I just wanted to present this one example as as like to enrich the the uh, the examples of in of from Yugoslavia. Yeah, thanks.
show last music for this edition jay farrar with voodoo candle and this is a guy who had a band with uh, mr tweedy who i'm very grateful to i think i was talking last episode or the one before how he helps kind of subsidize nels klein do freak out music so thank you so much mr tweedy uh but this wasn't called sun uh He had a band, right? Sun, it had the guy from, in the Clockhammer guy played drums, right? Kevin. Oh, um, um. Yeah, his name was Kevin, and there was it was a Nashville band, I remember. In fact, Matt, the bass man, went on to Pork Chop. But let me tell the people the, the music. I want a vacation from Samuel Locke Ward, uh, Zenochronic AMM All Stars with. Uh, I'm uh, they had me on bass. Sejgin's uh, talk improvised. Mangling and Rocket from the Crypt. Oh, this, this coast, uh, Carne Voodoo, Hot Snakes, and, uh, good, good band. Not Rocket from the Crypts, people, that's Ohio. <laughs> but this is Rock from the Crypt. No, Rocket from the Tombs. Tombs, yes. That's the difference. <laughs> that's the difference. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. So, Jay, this must have been after his. Uh, what was it called? Do you not remember? He had a band called Sunvolt. That's S- it. Uh, Sunvolt. Yeah. B-O-L-T. Yeah. And this had Kevin that I knew. And I didn't really know. And it seemed at this time Mr. Tweedy was kind of doing like Eagles. It, it was much different than the Nels Klein version. But uh, it's it's interesting. And, and, and you found yourself there, uh, yeah, doing, doing some 
drum work. Now, now you didn't have like an agent guy like looking for work for you, right? These oppor- these opportunities just came. Well, like you said, it's 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 being in the right place at the right time. Every I've never had any sort of representation. It's all just it's all just being somehow in the right place when a guy comes walking in the door of a bar and says, "I'm looking for my drummer." This story is uh, I was at a bar in, in New York once and Ryan Adams comes in and. I'd met him a little bit over the years, had never played oh, with him. Oh, Edward said, uh, helped him, right? Whiskey? Uh, uh, Whiskey Town, yes. Whiskey Town. Yeah. Anyway, and, go and on, go on. Say again? Go on, I'm sorry for interrupting you, Jeff. Oh, uh, so this was somewhere in the 90s. I was at a bar in New, New York City, and Ryan Adams comes walking in and said, hey, I, I was looking for my drummer. It's like some drummer he was working with, but I can't find him. And I said, well, I'm a drummer. And, and we ended up recording like 14 songs the next day, and I ended up going on a a tour with Whiskey Town a few months later, opening for John Fogarty for a summer. So it's all yeah. just like, who knows why this works out the way it does. Well, was Edward with him then? No, it was okay. right after Edward and... Because and, uh, then he his... helped out some uh, North Carolina people. Uh, what was it? Southern Culture on the Skids. Yes, yes. And, and all the while, uh, while that was happening, Ed and I and uh, our friend Jenny had a band called Grand National. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Grand um, National. Grand National. Yes. And Edward right now is in, in Pittsburgh. You know, uh, a lot of people helped him out because he was going through some hard times. And uh, he wants to make a new album. I, I would love to hear that. Um, he wants to come to Pedro and do it at Casa Hanzo. And, uh, yeah, I, I told him, that, man, I'll help him out. I'll do the, the bass, no problem. And he says, thank you. Thank you, my friend. So that's, that, awesome. that's his next plan. Yeah, it's really good news. I mean, oh, I see great. him all the time when I come through. But man, when I heard that bad news about it, he, he had some uh, hematoma, you know, some blood clot in his legs and stuff. But they took care of that. And he's on his road to recovery. So, uh, so with uh, Jay Farrar or uh, the Nick, K- you said something about Nick Cave an opportunity. Yes. Um, uh, God, I don't know how many years ago this was. Maybe it was three years ago. Um, uh, I, I get a message from from um, Fred Armisen. About playing in this Are you talking, talking. You're talking about the comedian. Yes. Yeah. But he 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 was on the, on my show once, and he told me he was a drummer. Oh yeah, he's he's a great drummer. Like he he's really good at that at that that kind of technical stuff. It's really impressive. The Chicago guy, right? And he was in some yeah. bands. He, he was telling us. Yeah. Like he and brother. So Matt. so so he 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 and this guy Bill Hader, who was a oh, Saturday Night Live uh, guy, also. Excuse me, but we'll get we're going to get to this. But you have a comedy connection. <laughs> Is that how you knew Fred, or was it through music? I think with Fred, it was through music because he would come and and pop on stage for a song or two with Bob Mould over the years. Yeah, so he uh, he'd play guitar, would do Nick, Flip Your Wig or something. He connects you, yeah, great album. He connects you with uh, Nick Cave. Yes, so so basically Fred and Bill have this show called Documentary Now, and it's they do these really great spoofs of actual documentaries. So they were doing this spoof of the Talking Heads documentary, Stop Making Sense. And uh, he asked if I would be the drummer. Is that the big outfit? Exactly, yes. So he asked if I would be the drummer in this this band. And and so I, I go out to L.A. and we rehearse. And it's super fun. And we shoot the the episode, and basically it's set up the the exact way the the actual film is, where it's it's a concert and you it all takes place in one theater and you know over over this night and everything changes as the show goes along. And um, 
we we shoot the the whole show twice, and in between the first and second tapings, um, one of the actors in in the episode is this guy Hal Wilner, the great music supervisor. Oh, we just lost him, right? Yes, yes. And so Hal comes up and says, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And I, and I said, "Well, I was going to fly fly home." And he goes, "Would you stay an extra day?" And, and I go, "Yeah, why?" And he said, "I'm producing this session tomorrow at um, um, Village Recorder." And I said, "Who who is it?" And he goes, "It's it's this T Rex Mark Bolin tribute album I'm producing, and it's it's Nick Cave." You're talking Maria Village Mac- Recorder in Santa Monica. Yes, yeah. That's where the Dan recorded. Right, same room. <laughs> that same room. I've been in there. Yeah. And, and so uh, wow. I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And, and so we record the, the whole next uh, take of the whole show. But during the entire show, I'm just thinking, all right, I got to learn these songs. I got to I got to find somewhere to stay. I got to see if I can get this rental car for an extra day. So it was the most like on autopilot I've ever been playing, but in a good way. Like I it, I, well, I was playing. And, co- and so co- Cosmic Dancer from uh, Electric Warrior. Yes. Yeah. You know, my so, first, me and D Boone's first concert we saw together was T Rex. That's amazing. At at the uh, at the Civic Center or or uh... it was the Long Beach Auditorium. It's torn down oh. now. Now there's the Long Beach Opera House where it used to be. But all the in concerts, a lot of them were filmed there. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, that's yeah, cool. That's why you're on the show, John, so you can find wow. like that. <laughs> so so yeah, because that's a trippy song. I don't even remember. Yeah, the drums come in, they lay out, and then they come in for the insignificant things. Yes, exactly. Very, very kind of sporadic and and kind of yeah, kind of soft. I think it was a uh, Tony uh, Visconti, and he's got Flo and Eddie, and mm-hmm. so you guys did. Nick play piano. Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, I showed up the next day, kind of still disbelieving this thing was going to happen, and I, I get in there, and there's a film crew there, and Second or so later, he walks in. And it's like, oh my god, that's him. He's here, and we big big forehead. Play, huh? He's got a big forehead. Oh my god, yeah, great, just like doesn't kid. look like anyone else. He's just like he's just his own thing. It's so cool. And so he played the piano, and we all just kind of fell into our little parts. And yeah, yeah, because you and don't it, want to do exactly like the original. You want to right reinterpret it exactly. Yeah, and so I mean, it was still. I think that he's was, the that only was, guy left in T Rex alive. Is the drummer man Will Legend? Might be. I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, we got it. Only like five more minutes of the show, but I, I want to. I got to tell people about your, your. Your. We we alluded to the comedy thing with Fred, but how did how that happen? I mean, that's another part of your uh, artistic expression. Yeah, I I feel like when I'm dead and gone, the thing I want to be most remembered for is this giant box set that that Tom Sharpling and I put out about five years ago or so we have been have been doing this this uh radio show for god it feels like it's 30 years but I think it's it's been been 15 or so where I'll call in as these these fake characters and and we perform these very long form comedy pieces and um but the way I got into that was kind of the way all these musical connections happen just like right place right time and without much thought going into it um i never had any comedy aspirations in yeah because yeah, think about it john uh like the way you learn drums you got these records or georgie you know now did you buy like some george carlin and lenny bruce albums <laughs> no w- w- when I was a kid, I, I, uh, my brother and I would would listen to he he, he cannot be named anymore Bill Cosby, uh, those records, and those were were uh, those were hugely influential records for me as like a 
whatever, a six-year-old or something. Uh, but I loved Second City Television. Um, that's probably my favorite thing that I liked. Mr. Show was a great show in the 90s. Yeah, things like that was really strange it was hard to tell if it was on you know what i'm talking about like the fourth wall kind of thing oh totally yeah yep <laughs> absolutely so so you were kind of being influenced by this stuff without really trying it was just you were you were absorbing it but then you uh what's what's your partner's name tom sharply tom tom so how'd you meet tom because he's probably instrumental right oh yeah we um we met at this crazy power bill of an indie rock show uh it was at this very short-lived new york venue called um i think it wasn't it wasn't the original ritz it was the second ritz and basically it was studio 54 but with a new name so so we're talking 1993 or two you know the ritz is back it's called webster hall now yes yeah um wasn't the academy so, so and how, it, how did you meet him it was a power bill it, it was my bloody valentine super chunk and pavement and um that's where i met tom he came to the show he was friends with the guys in super chunk before i was in the band and we just hit it off that night about comedy and music and we just ended up talking on the phone every day for about probably three years or so before we did our first ever call on on his show on wfmu and that's that's when we really started doing doing the, the calls regularly. Whoa. Wow. So, again, so, you know, the man with the beat in his hand. <laughs> You're there. <laughs> You're, pre- You're prepared. You were prepared. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet, John? Um, I am at, uh, at John Worcester, uh, J-O-N-W-U-R-S-T-E-R, uh, on all of them, on Instagram, Twitter. and. No, but do you have your own website? I don't, no. Shame on you. It's like having your own fanzines. It's so true. So you're putting your flyers on everybody else's telephone poles, but one day you'll get your own website. <laughs> and then you'll <laughs> have right. nobody like uh, being middleman on your message. Okay. That's right. <laughs> but uh, and what about, and, 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 and tell people about this show, because uh, people, you can listen to WFMU on the internet. And so what, when is this show? Well, or is um, it on demand? Can you listen to it at any time? Absolutely. We're we're no longer on WFMU. Uh, it, it's a standalone thing, at, and and you can find it at thebestshow.net. Okay. Thebestshow.net. Okay. And, and yeah. You'd be able to hear Tom and John here, yuck it up. And do, what do you still call in? Is it still the same mo? Yes. We we had our first call. We had like a six month sabbatical after all this stuff happened, and. Uh, we we came back strong Tuesday night, okay. so we're we're back. Oh oh, and I wanted to tell you this. Um, Bring it. Tom Tom also is a really great um, writer. He was a, he was a co producer writer on that TV show Monk. And um, after he got done with Monk, he wrote this new kind of funny uh, funny detective show. Um, it never got picked up, but the name of the show and, and the titular character's name was Mike Watts, W-A-T-T-S. And that was a tribute to you. Whoa. Yes. Yeah, that's when there's more than one of us. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Tom, thank you very much. As most I will. Kind. And it's been most kind of you being on the show, really, John. And any, any kind of music you got, come bring it. We'll talk about it. Uh, you're just righteous inspiration for anyone creative. Thank you so much for being you, Mike. I, w- I want to tell you one more thing. Bring it. I, I don't. I don't want to embarrass you or me. But w- when I was in this very, very dark patch between the band that got signed to Arista and Super Chunk, I had m- more than 
a handful of dreams in which you were there and were very helpful to me. So I don't know what that meant, but I've always appreciated it. Well, I was glad I was there to aid and abet in your journey because it's, it's righteous. You did. <laughs> okay, you. People, it's been November 12, 2020 edition. Peter shall keep your powder dry.